This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. Libby Snymer is off today. I'm Jane Brown. It's a major step forward in treating patients with the most lethal form of cancer. After nearly two years of planning, the Princess Margaret Cancer Center is launching a rapid diagnosis program for pancreatic cancer, which is the fourth leading cause of death from cancer. Today we'll hear a conversation our own Libby Snymer, a survivor of pancreatic cancer herself, had with physician-in-chief Dr. Malcolm Moore. Plus, it's an amazing achievement. This week, Jeanne Socrates successfully finished a solo trip around the world in her sailboat. It was her third attempt at doing so, and her journey was rife with peril. I'll speak to Jeanne about her incredible journey later on in the show. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The fish oil supplements that millions of men take each day to cut their risk of heart disease might have a negative health effect. A new study suggests that men who have higher levels of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids in their system face a more than 40% increased risk of developing prostate cancer. To determine this, the researchers relied on data from a past study that examined the blood concentrations of omega-3 in nearly 850 men with prostate cancer and about 1,400 men without prostate cancer. When they did this, the researchers found an association between high omega-3 levels and the occurrence of prostate cancer. It seems women are happier than men after a divorce. Research published in the journal Economica says despite the fact divorce can sometimes have a negative financial impact on women, it still makes them much happier than men. The lead author says getting out of a long-lasting bad marriage is a possible explanation. Researchers at the Kingston Business School in London, England, surveyed 10,000 people between the ages of 16 and 60 over a period of 20 years. Participants were asked to rate their happiness after major milestones, including divorce, death of a spouse, and loss of a job. They found women are significantly more content than usual for up to five years following the end of the marriage. While men also felt happier following divorce, the increase was less significant. The great Italian screen siren Sophia Loren is set to make her movie comeback. The 78-year-old superstar will be taking on her first starring role in nearly a decade in La Voce Umana, or The Human Voice, based on the 1930 play. The film is the latest feature directed by Loren's younger son, Eduardo Ponti. Shooting for the Italian-language adaptation of the French play will begin later in the month in Rome. 
The iconic actress previously appeared in her son's 2002 feature film debut, Between Strangers. Lorraine won kudos at the 1960 Cannes Film Festival and became the first actress to win an Oscar for a foreign film role for her performance in the wartime drama Two Women. And finally, he was known as the master of suspense in the 50s and 60s. But many people don't realize that Alfred Hitchcock began making films in the silent era. Nine surviving silent works by the legendary director have been added to the UNESCO Memory of the World Register for the UK. The United Nations program encourages the preservation of items of cultural significance. The nine Hitchcock silent films have been painstakingly restored by the British Film Institute. I'm Jane Brown, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The Zoomer Weekend Review's regular host, Libby Zneimer, is off celebrating a major milestone today, exactly five years since her diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And the anniversary is coinciding with a major step forward for all pancreatic cancer patients in our area. After nearly two years of planning, the Princess Margaret Cancer Center is launching a rapid diagnosis program that's expected to improve survival for patients with this terrible disease. Libby sat down with Physician-in-Chief Dr. Malcolm Moore. What it means is, Libby, is that the experience for patients uh, with suspected or confirmed pancreatic cancer will be more efficient and they'll have access to all the needed services uh, quickly, and that'll give them the best chance to uh, deal with and be cured of this uh, difficult disease. So tell me, how did things happen in the past, and, and what is this going to change, just practically? Well, these patients often would present to a family physician or an emergency department with a symptom uh, that leads to suspected pancreatic cancer, and that will often lead to a series of tests and and uh, x-rays, and then eventually the patients would be uh, diagnosed and referred down to a cancer center such as ours. Uh, what we're trying to do is shorten that period and also at the same time ensure that all the services we have at Princess Margaret to uh, care for and support pancreatic cancer patients are all centered around the patient so that when the patient comes, rather than having to go to different appointments on different days or different areas of the hospital, we can essentially bring all those services to the patient uh, in the clinic uh, when they're seen. And, and it was the first... Um, we've been piloting this for a while and, and trying to align all the services on one day around all of the new cases. What are the services that the patient needs? Medical oncology, which is chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and surgery. Uh, some of them will need gastroenterology. Some of them will need uh, psychosocial support, which may be psychiatry or psychologists. You also need radiologists uh, because some of the x-ray findings are quite complex. Uh, then beyond the physicians, you have uh, nurses, research coordinators, dietitians. There's actually a lot of different services that the patients uh, require. And uh, the other thing we do try to do on the first day is do an assess, an overall assessment of the patient to get a sense of what their unique needs and circumstances are. So beforehand, the patient would have had to see all these different professionals at different appointments, and now it's all one shot. 
exactly. So generally, the patient would enter the system in the past with a referral to one physician, and then from that initial appointment, a series of other appointments would be made. What we're doing now is that the referrals are made to the McCain Pancreatic Cancer Center. Uh, The center will organize the initial referrals. Uh, The center will often also organize any tests that are required before the patient actually sees the the team. And then uh, we will organize to have the whole team there uh, when the patient arrives. Now, each individual patient may not need to see everybody, but we can organize ourselves to have all those services available. By how much did that shorten the process? What we're really trying to do is get everything done in a week. Um, Our sense is that in the past it could have taken between uh, three weeks to three months to get all of this stuff done and coordinated. The whole rapid diagnosis model started with breast cancer. The key was to alleviate anxiety. But with pancreatic cancer, it's, it's a lot more practical than that, isn't it? Libby, it's a rapidly uh, growing cancer, and patients uh, are often quite sick. And during the peri- a period of a few months can go from being relatively healthy to really quite ill. So I think it, it's more than just anxiety. There's no question that patients who are in better general condition have a better chance of, uh, of fighting the disease. And so we, we want them to be in the physically best condition they can be before when we get the treatment started. Do you think that uh, handling the cases like this will actually improve survival? Well, we do. We think it will give more patients a chance for curative procedures. The only cure for pancreatic cancer at the moment is with a surgery followed by chemotherapy. And so we want to give more patients the opportunity to have surgery and to have the potential to be cured of pancreatic cancer. And we think by getting patients in sooner, getting patients assessed and processed more quickly, that'll give them a better chance. A big part of the problem is that family doctors don't uh, see this very often. They don't diagnose it very well. Um, Is there anything that is going to address that? Well, I I think with this announcement of the, uh, the opening of the center, uh, one of the things we want to do is is get the word out there that we're we're here to help, and that we can uh, help when you have these cases. Uh, but you're correct. Uh, pancreatic cancer occurs in about one in ten thousand per year. So each individual family physician within their practice would probably have one or less than one case a year. So they they would what they really need, I think, in these situations is is a place to go or a, a place to call, uh, and we can then help them with what's required and take over the care of the patient. Anything else that you think this will lead to? As we develop a higher profile, if you like, for pancreatic cancer, there is the opportunity for greater support and funding for research. It has been documented by organizations like Pancreatic Cancer Canada that the amount of funding for diseases like pancreatic cancer is is not proportional to the burden of illness and that we there needs to be more research funding, more funding into causes, more funding into screening. And we're hopeful that, that by raising the profile of the disease in our program, it will, it'll allow us to, to get more support. Good luck and congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. It's an amazing story. This week, 70-year-old Jen Socrates successfully completed a non-stop solo sail around the world. 
it was her third attempt at circumnavigating the globe and by no means easy. We'll talk to Jen in just a moment. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Imagine sailing around the world by yourself. Not too many people would entertain the idea, let alone see it through. 70-year-old Jen Socrates has accomplished this feat. Jen set out from Victoria, British Columbia in her 11-meter cruiser in October of last year. She arrived back this past Monday morning. Jen joins us on the line now. So, Jen, has sailing always been a lifelong passion? No, absolutely not. No, I've always enjoyed water and swimming, but that was the limit. I mean, the family, I mean, we, we were pretty poor in my childhood, and sailing like skiing never, never occurred to us to even think about doing it. It just wasn't in the family at all. I got the chance to learn, had to go on a sailing activity in a school I was teaching at, at one time, and um, everything went off, took off from there, basically. Tell us about the experience and the route and... If your age played a role at all in your accomplishment, do you think being wiser and older kept you stronger throughout this experience? Well, I suppose there was that possibility. I mean, I, I never felt that my age should be at all in any way relevant to what I was doing. Just, you know, if I wanted to do something, you know, the age wasn't a consideration. Just do it, you know. And um, luckily I am, you know, a healthy person. So, um, you know, that was the only constraint, obviously, but that generally is whatever your age you know, the age thing is really not, uh, not to my mind, it's just a number, it's not, not a consideration. And at what part of your uh, ultimate uh, successful journey, when did you know that you would actually circumvent the globe in a sailboat? Uh, when I crossed the finish line. <laughs> oh, okay. So, <laughs> I'd had so many problems along the way, I couldn't believe, I mean, even just a couple of weeks before I got to the finish you know, up this way, my, my stove came off its support, you know, a big heavy stove starts wanting to come loose and crash around the boat, and I'm thinking, I can't believe this, you know, I've had so many things go wrong uh, that I've had to deal with, it's just been absolutely amazing. What was the most challenging moment during your journey? Oh, getting myself up to the top of the mast to try and replace my wind instrument, definitely. I came down with my hands totally blistered and my body covered in my arms, covered in bruises, trying to get up there. And I didn't actually manage to get the last couple of feet because once I was up there with the boat moving about a little bit, which gets magnified the higher you go, of course, and the movement trying to jerk me off the mast, you know, violently uh, when I was up there. Um, I had to force myself, really force myself to go uh, the last uh, one-third of that climb. And then, as I say, when I got up there, I actually couldn't, uh, couldn't do what I wanted to do because I needed one last handhold on, on the part of the mast right near the top, and it wasn't there, and it just was not safe to continue up. I, I was up there for ages, you know, trying to think, could I, could I, could I, and thinking, well, it's just not safe. You know, I just can't put myself at risk for that, you know, and I just had to come down and... Um, that was definitely the, the most difficult part of the journey, probably. And, of course, I know that our listeners are thinking, and what about food and beverages? Like, how did you organize all of that? I mean, it, it's quite a feat, really. <laughs> yeah, it took a, a bit of planning, I have to say. I mean, my cereal feature, you know, for instance, I had to start weighing it out on a micro scale and multiplying up by 240 days, which is what I was working with as my kind of eight months assumed maximum length of time out there, and it was eight and a half in the end. But then you, you add in quite a, um, an extra to that just in case, always for brief provisioning a boat, doesn't matter how long you go out for, you always add in, you know, uh, quite a bit more. 
you, in part, uh, were doing this as well for terminally ill cancer patients. How did you come to have a connection with, uh, with help, helping to find a cure for cancer or, or helping people who are ultimately going to die of cancer? Well, my husband died of cancer, and then shortly after that, you know, another friend died of cancer and other friends. I think we're all touched by cancer now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. these days. And so um, that's why I, you know, I was aware of the, the charity, and I thought it was specifically, in fact, the home nursing side of things that they provide free of charge so that people could be in, in their homes in their last days, which I was particularly keen to support. Right. And Jen, what did you learn about yourself that you didn't know before you started out on your solo trip around the world? Mm. <laughs> Difficult. Uh, I, I, well, I, I suppose, yes, that, man, that, that putting things off, which I have a tendency to do often, it does not work on a boat. Manana does not work on a boat. Mm-hmm. You know, if you put anything off, you regret it the next day because it's probably got far, far worse or it's totally got, uh, come to the point where you can't deal with it. So you have to learn to deal with things instantly once you see them. So you faced your own procrastination issues. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Well, it was indeed a pleasure speaking with you. Congratulations. And, you know, we're curious, what's your next adventure or your next uh, accomplishment that's on your list? Uh, well, basically, I mean, having done that, um, I mean, the fact that I've not succeeded twice over, I've, met, I've made a lot of friends in the various stops I have made around the world as a result of the problems that I had to put into port to deal with that stopped me doing the non-stop previously. So um, I'm looking forward to just relaxing and seeing friends as I amble around the world now, cruising. Or, you know, I, I love being on the boat and I'm um, looking forward to being down in Mexico. I've got a lot of things to deal with on the boat still, so um, I, I want to uh, get the boat back, back in order. It's going to take a long time and a lot of effort. Wonderful. Jen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You can find out more about Jen's story online at svnarida.com. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. We're finally enjoying the summer weather we've all been waiting for, and in just a moment, we'll have a perfect summer song to go along with it. It was a song that topped the charts 50 years ago in the summer of 1963. Stay with us. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your International Arts Date Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Scott Walker. In New York City, 25 years after he appeared on screen in Dangerous Liaisons, John Malkovich is directing the stage adaptation of the 18th century novel. With English surtitles, Les Liaisons Dangereuses is part of the Lincoln Center Festival at the Gerald W. Lynch Theater. To the Windy City, where the exhibition Undressed explores the meaning of an informal dress and undress in intimate personal situations. It's presented as a companion to the major exhibition Impressionism, Fashion and Modernity at the Art Institute of Chicago. And in France, listed as one of the top 50 things to do in Paris, a new Chagall exhibit is on at the National Museum of Luxembourg. That's the International Arts Datebook. I'm Scott Walker. It's a beautiful summer weekend here in Toronto, and there's nothing better than a good summer jam to go along with the nice weather. Right now, we'll hear a song that was the number one hit for two weeks, 50 years ago in the summer of 1963. Written by Brian Wilson and Jan Barry, here are Jan and Dean with Surf City. Two girls for every 
That was Jan and Dean with Surf City, a great summer song that was at the top of the charts for two consecutive weeks in July of 1963. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Jane Brown. Thank you so much for joining us today. Come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program Director, John Vandria. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.